Several years ago, a group of people were taking a trip across the ocean. And as often happens, it was late in the middle of one night, the storm, a storm began to build on the horizon, the boat began to rock, things began to get unstable, and there began to be some problems. And a group of, a group of passengers met in one of the down, the, the, uh, the below deck passageways, and they began to have a discussion because it just had a sense that things were not really as they should be on board the ship. And finally, uh, one of them said, hey, I'm going to go up and I'm going to talk to the captain. So he made his way out into the storm, made his way up the catwalk, up to the, up to the upper deck and met the captain at the wheel. He was an old man and he was scanning the horizon with the, with the kind of gaze and the vision that comes from a man who has been on the sea for many, many years. And the, the curious passenger asked the captain, captain, are, are we safe? Captain, without ever diverting his gaze, quietly said, well, honestly, the boilers are very weak. We're pushing them to the max. They could explode at any time. And this boat is very old. Below deck, they're telling me she's taking on water. The reality is that we could blow up or sink at any moment. The poor person standing on the deck by the captain was stunned by his honesty and his transparency at this moment. And so they both just stood staring off into the darkness of the sea ahead. And then the captain spoke again and he says, we may go up, we may go down, but at any rate, we're going on. And you know, there's a lot of wisdom in that statement, isn't there? Sometimes in life, you don't like where you are. And sometimes in life, you find yourself standing on the deck of an old rusty ship, sailing into an uncertain sea. Now, maybe for some of you here today, this is an amazing time. Maybe as you look forward to 2024, you're in one of the best places of your life. And there's a lot of excitement about what God is going to do and what life is going to provide. And if that's you here today, I am super excited for you guys. And I hope that it is everything that you dream it will be. But statistically, we know that a lot of people right now have questions. In fact, in the last few months of the year, a lot of people go out and they poll people and they ask, hey, what, what are you thinking about 2024? How do you feel about 2023? And the numbers of people who are pessimistic about the future are quite high. Now, maybe we're just a bunch of pessimists. Or maybe, maybe like that old captain, we realize that we're pushing some things to the max the vessel that we call life is getting old and, and leaky. But we must go on. And this morning as we kind of conclude this series of messages that we've been going through from the very, very beginning of the Bible, that moment in time that God spoke into the darkness and life was created and he placed Adam and Eve in a garden, we are now going to finish the story. Now last week we we came to kind of the culmination of all those Old Testament Bible stories, the moment that in the form of a baby, the Son of God entered into the world, just as every one of us did. And, and, and I think that we know that, that the story of Jesus' life is a whole other sermon series, right? We could preach through that for a couple years. The, the Bible writers said, hey, if the sky were parchment and the sea were ink, we wouldn't be able to write down everything that Jesus did. His life was extraordinary. His purpose was focused and his accomplishments were legendary. But we're going to skip over the life of Jesus and even the development and the growth of the church to catch the end of the story. 
know how many of you are like me. You don't have to admit it this morning, right? But how many of you, when you get a book and you look at the cover and you're like, I don't know if I want to read this book or not, you flip to the last chapter or so and just skim it. Kind of curious, well, how does this, how does this story end? How does this novel conclude? Is it worth my investment to read the rest of it? This morning, we're going to do that. We're going to go to Revelation, the 21st chapter. If you have your Bibles or grab it on your phone this morning, click over there. Revelation 21, where John has, has witnessed things that have just blown his mind. It, it started out, he was in the spirit on the Lord's day and, 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 and he, Jesus came and stood among the candlesticks and kind of did a, did a summary of the seven churches scattered throughout Asia. And we all track with that. And then, and then John was given this invitation that he should step through this doorway into the dimension of what was to be. And John has seen things that boggle the imagination. But in Revelation 21, everything begins to become clear. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former order of things has passed away. It's pretty powerful imagery, isn't there? We might argue over what certain things in the book of Revelation mean, but in Revelation 21, no one argues. We get it. What God has desired from the very beginning will be realized in the end. When God put Adam and Eve in the garden, he wanted to have community with them. He wanted to have fellowship with them. He wanted to be their God and for them to be his people. But sin had entered the picture. It had destroyed all the harmony and all the beauty that God sought to create. But God says, I'm going to bring it back. That's the end of the story. And all the painful consequences of sin... Death and mourning and crying and pain, all those things that were introduced because of sin coming into the world, those, those are gone as well because the former order of things is gone. But then he continues in verse 7. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. To the one who conquers, we will have the, his heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. Behold, I am making all things new. There's coming a day where everything is going to be recreated with the glory and the purpose that God had created it for in the first place. But then he, he says again, I am the Alpha and the Omega. You don't have to be a great student of, of Greek to know that Alpha is the first letter, Omega is the last letter of the, of the alphabet. He is the beginning and the end. He is the start of the story and he will conclude the story in the day that he knows 
the story will close. But here's the important part of this story. The part that sometimes I think we just heard it so much, it just becomes casual to us, but it shouldn't be, right? He says, he says, and to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Some of you guys are probably like a lot of Americans right now. You're looking over the checkbook or over the credit card statements that are coming in and you're like, that was rough, right? <laughs> we did spend $950 a person as, as, uh, on Christmas this year, maybe not. But you're looking at that and, and it's because everything costs, right? You want to invite people over dinner, it costs. You want to buy someone a gift, even a little gift, it costs. Everything costs. Except this thing. We're told that if you want someone to take something seriously, you have to, you have to charge for it. But the problem is, is that how do you charge for salvation? You can't. We can't afford it. And God in his mercy and in his grace and in his wisdom said it's free. That doesn't mean it doesn't cost anything. It just means that it's without payment. Sometimes we use that word free. Jacob talked about this last week in his Lord's Supper meditation. At least we did on the phone. I can't remember if he said it in the Lord's Supper meditation or not. But it talks about how it was freely given. And sometimes we, we, we kind of think that it didn't have a real cost or a, a purpose. But that's not true. I love how it's put here in the book of Revelation that God will give it without payment. Jesus paid the price so that we might have an opportunity to drink. And you know what the sad thing is? The sad thing is that some people will look at that and they'll say to God, eh, I'm not thirsty. Eh, not right now. There's two things that I think that I would really like for us to get from this beautiful text. Because in this text, when God says, I behold, I am making all things new, that's in present active tense in Greek, which just simply means that He's doing it right now. It's happening right now. God is making broken, worn out, destroyed things new in the moment that he shared it with John. And he has never quit doing that to this day. And there's two ways that we want to look at this morning where God wants to make things new in your life and in mine. Now, there's undoubtedly way more than this, but just two for the sake of time this morning. And the first one is this. I think God wants to give you a new story that is written without fear. I don't think we realize as humans just how, how motivated we are and how obsessed we are by our fears. I'm amazed by old cartographers, map makers, people who could go into a, a, a place, unexplored area, and by using compass readings, star measurements, uh, distances with ropes, they could accurately or fairly accurately map uncharted regions of the world. And if you ever look at some of these old maps, it's pretty amazing how close they got it. Yeah, there's a little, little variance from what our GPS satellites show us today, but they did pretty good considering the tools that they had. But there was this funny little convention that many, many map makers used. If you look at old maps, you'll see this often, um, either drawn or written on the margins of the map because they would get to the place where, where they, they no longer had a chart for it. They hadn't gone there. It was not explored yet. And they would either draw or oftentimes just write in to the margins of the map where it would go off the paper, there may be dragons here. 
Now, they had never seen dragons. They didn't know there were dragons there. All they knew is they didn't know what was there. And humans are naturally afraid of the unknown. We're concerned about the uncharted. We're frightened by the things that we haven't or someone else hasn't seen before. And maybe that's why one of the most common phrases in Scripture, whether you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, is some form of the phrase, be not or do not be afraid. It's said by angels to people who are are encountering them for the first time. Oftentimes, God says it to people. Jesus would say it oftentimes to his own friends and disciples. Fear not. Do not be afraid. Notice what God says to John. Write this down. To the one who conquers, he will have this heritage that I will be his God and he will be my son, my child. I don't know if you ever stopped to think about this, but if you're a Christian here this morning, you are God's family. And we get that, right? We know that that you protect family, that you look out for family, that you will defend family. Now imagine this morning that the one who is looking out for you, protecting you and defending you is the one who created it all. The The phrase, be not afraid or fear not, is connected with the fact that God is with us. We are his people. I'm not going to lie to you this morning. I think we're all fully aware that terrible things may happen to us in life. God was pretty upfront with that when he sent his own son into the world. We look at the stories of Jesus and we look at the suffering that he went through and we're kind of revolted by it. How could somebody treat another human being in the way that Jesus was treated? And yet God allowed him to go through that for a greater purpose. And we'll talk about that in a moment. It wasn't just Jesus, though. Earlier in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 2 and verse 10, Jesus is talking through John to the church in Smyrna. And the church in Smyrna was one of those places where persecution was going to break out in the church. And Jesus tells the church this. He said, do not fear any of those who are, are things that you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And you will have tribulation for 10 days, but Be faithful until death, and I will give you a crown of life. If we're honest, I think most of us are afraid of the fact that we know there's a lot of things that can break this human body and destroy our short time here on earth. And that frightens us. Jesus Jesus recognizes that, but he was emboldened by the knowledge of what he knows that I can't and you can't. And that is, Jesus knows just how spectacular the life beyond is, just how big the presence of God is outside of what we can just see, and how much bigger God's purposes are than just this human life. Reality, I think that all of us would have to admit, we are people who struggle a little bit with faith and belief. It always reminds me of a story of a father who brings his demon-possessed child who is deaf and mute to to Jesus, but Jesus was up on a mountain, and so the other disciples, the nine, were gathered around, and they, they tried their best to cast out the evil spirit from this child, but they were unsuccessful. And so when Jesus rejoins the group, 
The father comes up to Jesus and he's earnestly seeking that Jesus might do something about this thing that was destroying the life and the future of his son. And he asks Jesus this statement. He said, if you can heal my son. And Jesus almost cuts him off in the middle of that sentence. Now, Jesus isn't being short here or angry here. Jesus is proving a point to the father and to us as well. In Mark, the ninth chapter in verse 23, Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. All things are possible for the one who believes. I don't know if you're like me, but so often I, I think about all the things that are not possible, all the impossibilities in the world, all the things that can't happen, won't happen, shouldn't happen because I can't make them happen. That father was looking at this situation and he recognized that it was out of his control, but he was no longer talking to a mere human. And Jesus said, if all things are possible for one who believes. That doesn't mean it will happen, but it means that it's possible. And notice the father's response in verse 24. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Such a powerful and true statement, isn't it? He believed, like here, but help my unbelief. I, I know that you can do everything, God, but help me believe that here. And I think that feels a lot like maybe me and maybe you in life sometimes. We know that God can do amazing things. We've just studied a whole bunch of stories of God doing tremendous things in the world through the lives of very simple and sometimes very broken people. But will God do that today? Yes and yes. These reminders should change the way we think it causes us to realize that no matter what we face, we are never alone. The writer of Hebrews kind of writes to this in Hebrews 13 and verse 5 and 6 when he, he says, keep your life free from money and be content with what you have. And this kind of prefaces, kind of an interesting preface right here because you're like, what's the love of money and contentment have to do? It has a lot because sometimes, guys, when we think, well, if I have more things or if I have more dollars in my bank account, there's security in those things. And Jesus is like, don't get fooled by, by that narrative. The amount of money you have in the bank account, the amount of things that you've stacked up between you and the things that you see, that you feel make you vulnerable really don't, really aren't your security. Then he goes on. Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can men do to me? Guys, we spend our whole lives worrying about 90% of the things that will never happen. But in that energy, in that focus, in that distraction, we miss countless opportunities that God wants to bring into our lives. We have no reason to fear, and yet we find ourselves often motivated by fear. And so I, I think that God is saying to us here as he closes out the book of Revelation, he says, hey, I want to be your God. I want to be with you. In fact, he is with us today. He's present with us, going through the struggles, the challenges, 
and overcoming the obstacles that are set in our path. But there's a second thing that I think God wants us to realize about his presence and how it affects and changes our life. Not only does it allow us to write a story without fear, but it gives us an opportunity to live a new life with a bigger purpose. Our world tells us, hey, the thing to live for is you. Make sure you're happy, you do you. Make sure that you're accomplishing the things that make you feel fulfilled. And while all those things have a short-term benefit, I won't argue with you about that. The reality I think we all know is that, that they always fall short. Whether it's that next rung of promotion at work, there's still another rung of promotion, right? Whether it's a few extra dollars in the bank account, there's always ways to spend that. Whether it's a bigger group of friends, it becomes overwhelming to have too many of them. And there's always, always that moment in the future when those things will be taken away where we reach the golden age of retirement, no matter how far we've climbed up the ladder of corporate success, they come in with the golden watch and the firm handshake and say, thank you for your service and show us the door. Or all those dollars that we piled up together will care for our health care, but not by our health. What is the big purpose that you are living your life for? I would like to ask you that question as we begin a new year together. What is the purpose of your life? I don't think we, I think we underestimate the power of the gift of new life that we have in Jesus Christ. Make no mistake, if you are a Christian here this morning, you are called to be a new person and you're called to have a new purpose in life. And you're no longer to live for the glory of your name but you're to live for the glory of his name. And those are easy things for us to say, obviously, right? And we all know them to be true, but how do we begin to live some of those things out? Because I think we know that some people don't come to Christ because of that. To be honest, they, they don't because they, they're not willing to give up themselves, their plans, their dreams, their future. Sometimes we kind of like our old selves, we like the old person and our old purposes. We, we're comfortable and happy with the plans that we've made, the career that we've shaped, the purpose that we're living our life for. We decide we're just going to be that kind of stick to a person. We're going to hang in there. We're going to push forward. We're going to do the things we've always done. We're not really interested in new birth or we think, ah, we'll be fine without it. We don't need another Lord in our life because we have one. And we know who it is. It's us. Honestly, probably a lot of us would have to say this morning, we kind of like the religion of self. It's faith is self-reliance. It's self-direction. It's self-autonomy. And the inevitability of progress. That's what our world lives for today, right? I've got this covered in my power, my strength, and my ability. So let me read to you what follows verse number five in Revelation 21. It would be irresponsible for me this morning not to read this to you because the same father that wrote and told us about all the awesome things that we have in Jesus, the opportunity we have to drink freely from the waters of life also reminds us that as glorious and as amazing as the opportunities are when we choose to follow, they're disastrous when we choose to rebel. In verse number eight, it says, but as for the cowardly, 
the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers and the sexually immoral, for the sorcerers, for the idolaters, and for all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is a second death. We, we like to talk about the good stuff in life. We love as preachers to preach about the goodness of God. But, but God here in his own voice chooses to balance the equation for us. And I have no choice this morning but to balance it for you. As you look at this list, it's a list that probably your name is written next to some of these things. And it starts in an odd place, doesn't it? I've always been reluctant to preach this passage of Scripture because of how it begins. And all cowardly. We don't think of cowardice as being sinful, certainly not something that would send somebody away from the presence of God for eternity. But as I opened this sermon this morning, I reminded you, as God reminds us in the beginning of this text, that I'm with you, that I am walking beside you, that I want to be your father. And if we don't choose to embrace that and believe that, it causes us to become people who make compromises on things that we should not compromise. It takes courage to stand our ground and to walk with the Father. The faithless. Jesus would often say, oh, you of little faith. And I think we hear that so much, it almost becomes dismissive for us. Oh, yeah, you know, you a little faith. Oh, me a little faith. It's a big deal to not have faith, church family. God has given us every opportunity to develop, to build, and to strengthen our faith. He allows us to have this opportunity to grow in grace. Think about this, right? If you're here today, we all have an opportunity to, to, to make a change, to do things differently, to say, okay, I'm going to step in this direction. I'm going to walk this way. I'm going to find new courage. I'm going I'm to go to God for that. If we don't take those opportunities, God does not want to, but God is forced to allow us to accept the result of our choosing. And this, not in this text, but in another place, it reminds us that hell was not created for people. It was created for the devil and his angels. But in life, we have one big choice, one purpose. For who shall we live? Are we going to live for the glory of God? Or are we going to live for our own glory. The good news is that, as we've already pointed out, but we will point out again that we can choose to drink freely from the waters of life and we can choose to, to allow ourselves to surrender to the one who is our father, who loves us, that we can call dad. But we can also choose to not surrender. So how do we know if our purpose for living is lacking? How do we know if we have that newness of life? The Apostle Paul talks about that in Romans, the sixth chapter in verse four. He said that we walk in newness of life. And if there was ever anybody in scripture that understood exactly what that meant, certainly it was the Apostle Paul, right? I mean, here was a man who went from persecutor of the church to the greatest promoter of the church almost overnight. But that newness of life has an effect on our life. And so what are the signs that maybe I'm lacking that newness of life or purpose that God would have for me? Number one, if we are blatantly living in sin. Guys, I, I guess I just have to say it. I don't know how else to say it. If, if, if there's things in your life that you know are, 
are hurting God. If, you know, if there are things in your life that you know make God sad, and, and you just continue on in that direction, you, there's something not, not connecting right here. Because your heavenly Father loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you, to, to pay those sin prices, to, to make it to where you didn't have to, to pay for that price. And if you can just get up every day and do what you want without your conscience burning a hole in your heart, it's either hardened or you're missing something, and I hope it's the latter. If we're living our lives to bring him glory and bring him honor, it's just natural that that those purposeful sins begin to diminish. Now, I'm not saying this morning you're going to be perfect. I'm not even holding that out. Uh, we all strive for perfection, but we all recognize that we have weaknesses. The Apostle Paul talked about that brilliantly in Romans, the seventh chapter. He said, I, I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I want to do. What a wretched man am I? But if you notice in that text, he says, I don't want to do them. I do them, but I don't want to. I want to do the good things, but I find myself not doing them. He's talking about the war that happens between self and, and our Heavenly Father. When we're blatantly living in sin, we're just going on and doing what we want to do with absolute disregard to what it is that Jesus did for us when he saved us. Second thing maybe is that you're lacking joy or excitement. You might think, well, well Jason, I don't see how that's important, but it is. The fruits of the Spirit are love and joy. Second thing on that list, and I'm not talking about happiness. We don't have time to break each of these down this morning and maybe the way that we should, but I'm talking about having to have a spirit of contentment, of, of looking at the world no matter where you are and recognizing this is a day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. God, I may not be where I want to be. I may not be doing what I want to do. God, I may not be feeling as good as I want to feel but I'm going to do the most that I can for you in this day. If we don't have that, maybe our purpose for living is not all that it could be. Maybe we're people that feel like we don't have much fulfillment in life. We already talked about this a little bit before, but everything that the world says is going to provide fulfillment typically has an opportunity for someone else to benefit from our desiring fulfillment. Some money's to be made, some fame is to be gathered, some power is to be extracted from our desire for fulfillment. God freely, without charge, gives us an opportunity to have fulfillment, but the things that we invest in are very different. They're not things. They're opportunities that have been laid in our, in our lap. Maybe we feel stuck. We desperately want to change, but we feel stuck. We go to work, we clock in, we go home, we flop on the couch, we watch TV. We wait and work for the weekends and for retirement. When we're stuck, we want to go in a particular direction, but we don't necessarily know how to get there or how to get going. Or maybe this morning you just look at your life and you realize, I really don't have a real direction anymore. Sometimes that happens just naturally. Life shifts gears and things change Maybe you're kind of like Michelle and I. We, uh, we, we just celebrated yesterday the 18th birthday of, my, of our youngest daughter, which is kind of an interesting moment. We were cooking lunch yesterday afternoon. Michelle looked over at me and she says, I think we're like officially done raising children. I never really thought about it, although I don't think we ever really done raising children, but she's right. Both of our kids are technical adults. 
And sometimes you just wake up and you look around and you realize that thing that you've been living life for, that thing that you've been focusing on, those, those things that you've been applying your energy to, they're not the same as they once were. So how do we regain direction? How do we, how do we make sure that we're living our life with the purpose God would have us have. Not a, not a small purpose that we might create, but the grand image that God would have us see. I think there's five things, and we'll use those as we close today, that we can do. And the first two, I know will sound cliche, but they are not cliche. I think they may, in fact, be the way to transform these parts of your spiritual life more than any other. The first one is this, that we start with prayer. Look, God tells us in Revelation 21, I will be their God. They will be my people. I will be their God. They will be my children. He wants to have this conversation with you. There's not a one of you who's a parent here today that if your kid came up to you and said, hey, can we just sit down and talk about the direction of my life and the plans and the purposes that I have for my life? There's not a one of us here today that's a parent or even even not even if it's not our kid, that wouldn't say, let's sit down, let's have a conversation about that. Absolutely. And if we would have a conversation about that, how much more would our Heavenly Father love to have that conversation? If you're sitting in church today, like so many of us often do, if we're honest, and we're saying, God, I don't know where you're leading me. I don't know where you want me to go. I don't know what the next stage is. The place to start with that is to have a conversation with the one who made you. If you don't have the unrepentant sin in your life, if your heart is clean before the Lord and you're just wondering what next, he's the one to ask that question. And we make prayer to be so many complicated things and formulas and charts. And, but look, when you, when you are really, really willing and ready to say, God, wherever you would have me go, whatever you would have me do, God, here I am, send me. As we talked about a few weeks ago, prayer becomes really real, really quick. Because I can guarantee you of a couple of things. God's going to take you to places you never thought you would show up. God's going to have you doing things that you never thought you would do. And you'll be successful and see things happen that you never imagined. Which leads us to the second thing. That is apply God's word to your life. Don't just read it. But actually apply it. Ask yourself, how does this relate to me? I would like to offer this challenge to you. We're going to have a Bible reading plan that's going to kind of roll out next week, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But part of that is, is that we're going to go through as a church through the Gospels this year. And, and if you've never read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the life of Christ, I would really challenge you to do that because that is the example that we are to measure our life up, up against. That is who we're called to be. Now, we're never going to make it because we're not Jesus, but that is, that is the pattern. That is the, that is the source of our inspiration. And when you don't just read the word of God, but then you ask this question, how does this apply to me? How does this shape my life? How should I be doing what I'm reading here? That's where the power of God really works to transform our life. The Bible tells us that God's word is living and it's active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And that sharpness comes when we invite it in to judge us, to divide our hearts, our thoughts and intentions, to sort out where we are and what we're doing. The third thing is to recognize the gifts and the strengths that God has given you. This group today, you guys, as every group would be, but you're brilliantly talented. Some of you guys are in very, very successful in what you do in life. And you have maybe many of you have reached some of the upper echelons of where it is that God or where it is that the world would have you go. You, you've worked in high level management positions and a lot of different things. Where 
is God gifted you to serve in the kingdom? Sometimes we think of those things as like, that's my work life. But God didn't just give you those gifts to earn money. Yeah, they do that too. But he gave you those gifts and those abilities to invest in the kingdom. Maybe you're a math whiz, or maybe you're a great counselor. Maybe you have a mind for electronics, or you're great with business. Maybe you're great at organizing people and getting things done. God's mission involves the things that you're already good at. There's a need for every single one of those in ministry and in church. Sometimes it's just recognizing that and being willing to use those is all that God needs. Number four, seek out accountability. The Bible says that iron sharpens iron. So one man sharpens another. And and, in in Proverbs, the, uh, the 11th chapter, it says that where there is no guidance, people fail. But in the abundance of counselors, there's safety. When you have a lot of people that are kind of talking things over and working things together and sorting things out, a bunch of eyes see things that just a pair of eyes don't see. And we all need that accountability. I don't care who you are in this room this morning. We need accountability. We need people that are a part of our life that will keep us walking and moving in the direction that God has called us to walk. That's why church is so important. That's why getting together in person is so important. Yeah, you can learn in a remote environment, but when you're with another group of people, when you're gathering in homes, when you're studying the scripture together, when you're jumping into projects together, that's when, that's when that growth happens. That's when that accountability forms. And last, but certainly not least on this list this morning, is trust God. He created you. He saved you. He will guide you. David wrote about God in the form of a shepherd in the 23rd Psalm. We use it for so many different occasions. But in the middle of that Psalm, he says, he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Not for us. It's not for our glory, or for our purpose, or for our excitement, but it's for his. But, but you notice here that in each of these instances, David says, he leads me. Which requires just one thing of the one being led. That is that the one being led is willing to follow. And maybe among all the other things that we've said this morning, maybe... Maybe that's the most important thing for me to say as we close today. Are you willing to follow? Are you willing to follow the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the one that will make all things new? Because if you're just willing to say to God, here I am, my eyes are open, my ears are attentive, I'm ready to follow you. He will lead you. And he will accomplish important things with your life. We may go up. We may go down. But at any rate, we're going on. Life does not stop. Time does not slow. Tomorrow morning, we'll roll out of bed at whatever time you roll out of bed in the morning. And it will be... 2024, unless God decides to come before that moment, will you follow? Will you follow the one who gives you new birth, 
who's given you a new heart, a hope for a new life, a new hope in life, and a new task in your life. Man, the most important question that you can ask yourselves in life is simply that. Will I follow? Will we follow as a church family? Our shepherd and our Lord. Let's stand together, church family. If you have a need this morning, you know you can always come. If you need to get with one of us, we won't leave here today until we've answered your questions or talked with you or set something up. Maybe right now as you stand there, you want to just bow your head and say, God, help me to follow. Help me to get back on the track that you want me to be on. Please do that as we sing together.